0: The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to The Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly.
1: Welcome to The Unlearn Podcast. Now this episode I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Grayman. You know one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is I get to work with and meet people from so many diverse industries. And Mark is one of the most interesting. You see Mark grew up in the Motor City and was first exposed to Toyota production system early in his career and as he moved forward started to recognize and evolve into healthcare industries where he started to coach hospitals, teams, and doctors about how they could use these principles in their work. He wrote the phenomenal book, Lean Hospitals, and most recently, Measures of Success, and in fact, won the Shingo Award in 2009 as the first healthcare book to ever win that award from the lean community. But before we dive into Mark and what he's done, and all the hospitals and areas that he's helped, Let's find out a little bit more about his background and how he did get started in the Motor City. All right, Mark, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you
0: here. Thanks, Barry. Great to be here with you.
1: So one of the things I was really excited about having you on the show is that you have such a broad and, and extensive experience in applying lean and experimentation and all sorts of organization and very specifically, obviously, in healthcare. But you know, I imagine you didn't wake up one morning and suddenly decide that you were going to have a deep expertise in that area. So I'm interested to know a little bit about your origin story. How did you find your way to what you're doing today?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, some of it's a function of time, uh, you know, experience versus expertise. I don't know you know, I've been at this for a while, but there are some building blocks, I guess, professionally that helped me get to where I am today and you know, it's like a lot of startup people say, in hindsight, it's easy to want to paint this picture of a straight linear path. But the reality of my career path is that picture that shows the more realistic meanderings. Started my career, my undergrad was industrial engineering. So in a way, you could say that perfectly tees up somebody for a career in operations and improvement and business. And, you know, one of the, I guess, you know, fortuitous things that happened right after college. I had enough exposure um, to the idea that Toyota had a better way of doing things. This was controversial after having grown up in Detroit, in the Detroit area with a dad who spent his whole career at General Motors. But I had this idea that I didn't want to go work at companies like GM. I wanted to try to find, you know, a more modern type of environment to work in, whatever I thought that was going to be. But again, you know, thanks to the serendipity with my dad having been a GM, he was exposed to W. Edwards Deming, and you know, Dr. Deming you know, was at sort of the peak of his fame or popularity, if that's important, in the, you know, the mid to late '80s. And so, my dad had a copy of Dr. Deming's book, and being a curious engineer who liked to read, you know, I picked it up, and so I had that dual exposure—not just to Toyota, but to Dr. Deming and Dr. Deming. It a huge influence on Toyota. And so I ended up, though, working at General Motors. You know, think, well, why'd you do that? And it wasn't out of career job search desperation. There was this factory within General Motors that claimed it followed the Deming philosophy, and they talked a good game, and this was really appealing to me. And then I showed up and it didn't take me long to figure out that, oh, that was two plant managers ago, that none of that had really stuck. So there I was in a very traditional General Motors environment. But then I was fortunate to have some mentors. You know, GM made attempts to hire in experts, experienced people from other companies. So I was learning from them in this just avalanche of waste and problems that we were dealing with. And then I was also fortunate then to end up with a second plant manager who was one of the original GM Newmi me people who was sent to California to work with Toyota, to learn from Toyota. And so you know, I was fortunate to have this combination of some really, I hate to say, awful, waste-filled, underperforming environments, but with some mentors who had a good vision about how it could be better, to give yeah. me optimism that you could be in the midst of chaos and realize, you know, no, this is fixable.
1: Well, it's such an interesting nexus and context in so many ways. I imagine your father growing up in GM and learning the sort of way of work there, being in that wider context of Detroit, and then these ideas essentially challenging a lot of that industry, that economy, Mm -hmm. those ways of working. What were some of the things that you really bumped up against that you sort of saw this clash of worlds, this clash of culture or thinking and behavior?
0: Well, I mean, and so some of those things I saw still carry forth 20 four years later, sadly, even in healthcare environments. I mean, you know, the old GM way was, could be summarized. I mean, a couple of things come to mind is that quantity first, make the numbers, quality be damned, we'll fix it later, keep the line running, where of course, you know, the Toyota lean approach is to put quality first and to empower employees to ask for help or even stop the line if there's a problem. So that's a difficult habit for organizations to unlearn. There was a lot of I mean, the old environment just yelling and screaming and blaming, you know, blaming individuals for systemic problems. And uh, a lot of that happens in healthcare today. So it's interesting. And I mean, it's just another random thought here is that. People in healthcare, and maybe this happens in software companies as well, You know, people who've never worked in manufacturing maybe kind of look down upon manufacturing. And people in healthcare, when they first hear about the idea of lean or Toyota, and they say, well, you know, patients are not cars. I'm like, well, obviously that's <laughs> quite true. Like, where do we disagree? <laughs> well, you know, we can't turn the hospital into some sort of assembly line. And I realized, like, they're picturing something like, I'm going to go to cartoons here. Fred Flintstone, Homer Simpson, Peter Griffin. Like, they think people, like, do you think manufacturing people are all a bunch of adults? And the irony is that I've gotten on a soapbox here, but healthcare has so much to learn for manufacturing when they say, well, it can't be some sort of assembly line. I'm like, well, we're not going to put the patient operating table literally on a moving assembly line, but it would actually be quite good for everybody involved if nurses and doctors and people lower in the hierarchy were actually empowered to stop the line if there was risk to the patient. That's still quite revolutionary in healthcare.
1: And it's great to hear this. You know, I find the same in technology and technology is now touching so many businesses. Everyone always is a little bit unique well, we're not like that other domain. But I think some of these sort of lessons that you can abstract out and principles that you can apply across these domains are really powerful because so much of this is about human systems, yep. organizing the way people work together to drive outcomes. So, you now, thinking about unlearning then and some of the, your examples maybe in the healthcare space, where was the time then that maybe you had to maybe unlearn some of your behaviors as you went and thinking as you started to tackle challenges maybe specifically to that domain.
0: Yeah. there's examples from back in manufacturing as I worked in a few different manufacturing companies and then in healthcare. But just to finish a bit of the origin story though, I had to unlearn the idea of what I thought my career was going to be. And I thought my career was going to be progressively higher leadership roles and some large manufacturing company. And there was serendipity in 2005. My wife was changing jobs. We were moving from Phoenix to Dallas that by necessity put me on the job market. And I was able to take advantage of an opportunity to move over into healthcare, to start off as a consultant working with hospitals and health systems. And I got to a point where I'd changed jobs enough. And I thought, well, I'm looking for something. I don't know what it is. I'm going to treat this like an experiment where, you know, I can work in healthcare for two years. And if I don't like it, I could always go back to the type of thing I was doing before. You know, now, 13, 14 years later, that might be more difficult. But that was one of the unlearnings is unlearning the idea that you can really plan your career instead of, if you will, relearning the idea that sometimes opportunities will present themselves and you've got to be willing to veer not knowing is this a temporary detour is this a total change in direction
1: yeah it's great to hear you share those sorts of stories right i think people get very trapped in their idea that i've invested in this career therefore i can only stay in this career Uh, yeah and i think really listening to you it sounds like the outcome you're really describing is you want to have a great career but there's many ways to get there and Mm -hmm. when options come up you're comfortable Willing to get uncomfortable and experiment Mm -hmm. with those opportunities and see what you learn, unlearn and relearn to get some of these breakthroughs, which is was interesting to hear.
0: And I think one other thing to unlearn, and I still struggle with this at times and organizations do, is shifting from the idea of I know something to I'm continuing to discover something. And there's a tendency or a thread is, you know, somebody goes to some sort of certification and they say, oh, I learned lean last year. I'm like, well, I thankfully I had good mentors who helped me unlearn the idea that, well, I went to university and I got a degree. I know this. And I had mentors who set this example of continual learning. And I think one other thing that has served me well through these different moves.
1: Yeah. And it keeps you curious, I think, when you go in with that mindset. And I think that's a really powerful tool to support this idea of continuously learning and unlearning.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the difference between, forget which, I'm thinking back to somebody I worked with, you know, saying, well, are are you a know-it-all or a learn-it-all organization? (laughs) And I think it's served me well. I think that I'm more in the learn-it-all category. There's some things I know, but I'm not holding that up and saying, here's what I know. This is why you should work with me. It's more a matter of trying to pitch. Here's what we can learn. Here's what we can figure out together.
1: So maybe tell us a little bit of an example where you've sort of been in that sort of scenario um, maybe people pushing ideas of how things should be done versus trying to find out ways mm-hmm. to get there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've been guilty of that. I've talked about that. I've written about that. There's a book that I started and found other contributors for and ended up, I I guess you call this an anthology, a book called Practicing Lean. And, you know, one of the stories, there's many of these stories, but there was this difference between like being the engineer who is developing a solution. And I was, you know, in some of these cases, I was doing this, I think, very much in a spirit of serving others, of not just being the smart guy who had a task to accomplish and wanted to do it well to impress somebody. Like even back at General Motors, I think in one case, there was an ergonomics problem on part of the line. I didn't like the fact that there was risk and opportunity that assembly line workers could get hurt. I had ergonomics training. It was my job in the framework of how the organization worked. It was my job to fix it. And looking back on it, some of it's on me of, not getting as much input from the workers. And now I think back, I'm a little bit appalled. Like I was really, even (laughs) if well-intended and for the better, I was affecting their workspace. But at the same time, I was working within the framework of that culture, which I think to an extreme didn't respect the input of employees. I had tendencies more so than others there to work with people. But the expectation was, Mark, you're the engineer. We're paying you. You go figure it out. You buy the equipment, you schedule the maintenance. So if anyone doesn't like it, well, tough, you know?
1: Yeah, I've seen this sort of danger and curse of expertise sometimes, not only on the individual, but how people interpret that individual or sometimes the pedestal like you've described they put them on mm-hmm. can actually be an inhibitor for them to find their own path or to build the capability in themselves.
0: Yeah, Well, and i found so, I mean, this is jumping ahead to more like the last 10 years, but there's the consultant trap where there's client expectations. The client oftentimes says, well, we're hiring an expert and experts tell us what to do. And you're asking us questions and you're trying to get us to figure it out. And that seems slow and we're certainly annoyed by it. Just tell us what to do, Mr. Expert.
1: (laughs) Yep. Give me the answer.
0: Give me the answer. Like, I don't know if that really serves you well for the long term. And they're like, oh, just tell us the answer. Again,
1: another great point to underline that behavior that needs to be unlearned. And um, so you mentioned that some of the areas you've tried to think. Can you share an example of maybe a project you've been on or some aspect along those lines?
0: Of things that I wish I had unlearned earlier or yeah. when I actually started learning? <laughs> well, I'm always keen
1: to hear so, well, the stories where people wish that they'd unlearned earlier because that's a fun point.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I'm happy to talk about that. You know, when I was working, it was my last manufacturing company. There was a project that I had scoped out and I had to take on to get my, it was basically the equivalent of a lean black belt certification within Honeywell. And, you know, there was a business problem to be solved. There was a subassembly area that was having trouble sending enough product to the assembly area. And so I was tasked to go in and basically help figure out a production Kanban system of figuring out, and there's math. So here's the engineering and the lean technique of looking at the demand for different products, looking at the setup time, trying to reduce the setup time, figuring out for today, here are workable batch sizes. Here's a cart with visually marked inventory levels, and and this is not a Kanban board like people in software use Kanban. This is Toyota manufacturing Kanban. But, you know, visual signals that would basically say to the workers, when inventory of this part gets down to a certain level, take this card, put it in sequence up on the magnet board. And I think it was technically correct and well designed, and it could have worked. And you know what? It got me certification, and I have a plaque on the wall. That says yeah. I'm certified, and but the technically correct solution was not being accepted by people. And there was, you know, the one guy that ran the one machine and did the changeovers. Like I've been doing this forever. I can know know the batch sizes need to be bigger. I know when to do the setups. But like we're running out of parts. Like I don't think <laughs> I'm just stating fact of like the way you're doing it ain't working. And so I felt caught in between where management was sort of telling me, go fix this. And I wasn't properly navigating. Like I would have totally gone about it differently if I could go back in time in terms of engaging people, asking for some help from leadership. But then there's that dilemma again of, here's how I would have operated differently. But there were also the expectations of the organization and its culture that I was working in that was still very much a culture of well, we're training and certifying experts, and they will tell people what to do. And if they're not doing what you say, then there will be consequences. I'm like, well, that's not effective change management. That's not being good at being an adult, if that's the way you're expected to operate. So thankfully, over time, like, and I don't know, there was no magic epiphany, but I think I had some coaching and mentoring and had my eyes open to a way of running a project that would actually engage and involve people instead of feeling like you were doing it to them. That was part of the kind of evolution in approach when I started working in healthcare because of some of the methodology at Johnson & Johnson when I started working there.
1: Well, that's really interesting to hear this story, you know, because again, the way I sort of start to unpack that as I hear you share it is, you know, this idea of being clear on the outcomes that you want is so important to help people make good decisions and better decisions about getting there. And it's interesting to hear the contrary and, and contrasting outcomes sometimes that people are driving for yeah. in companies. So the managers are like, I want these people certified. And then you're asked, starting to see these questions of, well, is certifying actually creating a better system, a better place, <laughs> a better, you know? And I think... It's such an interesting thing we see in many companies. But again, being clear on that outcome sometimes is yeah. a, very important. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, I think I like the way you put that. Being clear on the outcome or as I've been coached by former Toyota people, before jumping to the solution or trying to gain buy-in or agreement on a solution, you better first get clarity around the problem statement and the need and the gap. And then we can talk about closing that gap, which to me is an outcome. If you can't get agreement on like the basic level of do we have a problem, it's way too early to be talking about solutions.
1: Yeah. And I see that so much in companies, right? We optimize straight to the solution and we jump to optimizing the solution that we've already optimized for, which is so funny in its own right. Yeah. So maybe just share a little bit for some of the listeners, like what are some of those tools when you're trying to write these problem statements that you would gravitate towards? How do you bring people together to talk a little bit about them? And what levels do these sort of measures of success operate on?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, there's tools like A3 Problem Solving, which is a structured, somewhat prescriptive framework for solving a problem. It's not a cookbook. It doesn't make it easy, but having a framework can help. And so that framework involves understanding the situation, the need, why is this an important problem to solve? What's the current condition? What's the gap in performance? What do we think some of the reasons are for the gap in performance? So, you know, technical methods like that are helpful, but one thing that I had an opportunity to do at J&J, when we had a consulting team, again, you know, working out in the field with, hospitals. I think I was in a JNJ building twice in four years. I was always out in the field. And they had this project methodology that was the standard project approach that was, it was amazing. We would have clients buy the idea of a 12 to 16 week project. So this was a combination of like really big systematic, systemic improvements of like, we're going to come in and not just tweak your existing laboratory equipment layout and workflows like we're going to start from a blank sheet of paper and as much as we can we're going to radically try to change it this is not continuous improvement this is radical step function improvement but the thing that was brilliant about this approach is that we would actually get clients to agree to give us a team of like five to seven people dedicated full-time 100 percent to that project so this is you know healthcare professionals maybe a manager, maybe someone in between in the supervisor level, that they were taken off of their regular work and they were backfilled and maybe they'd bring in some temporary staff or some other people would work overtime. But this combination of respecting the frontline staff enough to say, we're not just going to pay you to do billable work for patients, we're going to pay you to improve how we do the work under the guidance of a coach consultant facilitator whatever you want to call them so my job and my role was radically different instead of being the expert who was going to tell them what to do and sometimes the client they would fall back on just tell me what to do but to have this project team sort of learning lean principles and more importantly studying their own work not in the framework of your book this is making me think we were teaching people to unlearn some of the way they had always done things or to learn through direct observation that some of these methods were not ideal. It wasn't me telling them that, for example, this common practice in the morning is the lab would send out phlebotomists to go collect blood from patients who are in their hospital rooms and then send that blood down to the lab to be tested and get the result to the doctor. And maybe that patient could be discharged that morning if that information flow in, fed into the clinical decision-making. But there were just these old habits of point efficiency where a phlebotomist might have figured out or might have been told, well, it's most efficient. You can collect more specimens per hour if you collect a specimen, collect a specimen, collect a specimen, collect an hour's worth of specimens. And each one takes maybe five minutes total to collect a batch of 10 or 12 specimens and send them all down to the lab all at once. So you've saved a little bit of time of not walking back and forth as much. Now, what's really hampered is the overall flow of saying, well, what really matters more is the timeliness of that first specimen getting down to the lab and helping people understand that we'll figure out how to make smaller batch sizes possible. We're not just going to lecture you. You're bad for collecting big batches. Like they had labor and staffing constraints and some of the hospitals actually allowed us to help understand and make the case that phlebotomists aren't paid very much. If you hire a couple more phlebotomists and improve, reduce some of the waste, and now you're sending batches of two or three, if not single piece flow, and now patients are getting discharged more quickly, that's a huge, huge ROI, right? So it's unlearning the idea of local efficiency and local optimization instead of looking at the overall system we were able to accomplish some really, really great things. And again, not because it was me as expert, but because we had a team of people who had done the work and were willing and able to unlearn and relearn and break through. That's why I like that model from your book, because I've been through cases now in hindsight where I'm like, yeah, that's what happened.
1: I do. And For me personally, it's so interesting to hear this story and the characteristics of it and apply it to my experience building technology products. We have these concepts of bringing cross-functional teams together that are co-located and dedicated specifically on that product and thinking about this idea from idea to in you know, a customer's hand, that end flow of work and the system of works that support it. And when these local optimizations don't create an optimal system, and it's really nice to hear a sort of story like that in the healthcare industry as well, just it, it resonates so much with me in terms of some of those patterns you're using there. And um, so super interesting to hear this in different domains. It's one of the reasons I do the podcast. I just learn so much from other people's oh, stuff. Yeah, it's really, yeah, yeah. really fun to hear. So just love, like to know for yourself then, like what are some of those trigger points for you when you feel like maybe we are using the wrong behaviors or maybe our current thinking is holding us back? What helps you sort of, your spider senses, if you will, kick off that there's something not right here? How do you sort Mm. of sense that?
0: Well, I think it's easier to sense something's not right, but what's more difficult or what I'm trying to think back and reflect to is like, what creates this moment where people are open to the idea of unlearning, where people are willing to even open up the possibility of giving up the way we've always done it? I mean, I think, you know, some organizations that I've been to, like you had somebody who personally or professionally was at their wits end of like, you know, we've tried everything. I don't know what else to try. You know, I've met people who've done really innovative work in the domains of dentistry and a friend of mine who's a veterinarian of hearing their stories of like, Seeking out and trying different things. And I go to conferences, and it's all within my domain, and it's all variations of people telling me to do the same thing I'm doing better. <laughs> and there's really nothing to be gained from that. And people had the courage to look outside of their domain and to realize that, you know, dentistry is not an auto factory. My friend, Dr. Bari, the dentist, didn't even have another dental practice to go and learn from and copy from. He didn't have a book. He actually ended up writing a book that was republished by the Lean Enterprise Institute, The Lean Dentist. So he didn't have anyone to go from, but it's funny. So he went and read the books by Ono and Shingo and some of the people that Eric Reese mentions. He read Deming. So I think, you know, Eric, from what I know of his story, there were similarities of saying, I'm gonna look outside of my domain for inspiration. But the final thing I'll say about Dr. Bari, the first title, the original title of his book when it was published and it was this way for five or seven years, you'll like this. He titled the book Follow the Learner, which is a bit more esoteric than The Lean Dentist, but he was shifting his own model from being the guy who owned the dental practice and was the boss to somebody who started engaging his team and his employees in a different way. And that led to for his practice, radically better results.
1: Yes, fantastic story and great intent in the title there. I really, yeah. really enjoyed that. Your are right. So these are all great stories, I think, of, you know, your own personal journey, teams that you've been part of, colleagues or people that you collaborate with in the industry. And is there any sort of organizational moments that you can think of about times where you see organizations struggle to unlearn or even recognize that there is a need for them to unlearn. What are some of the things that come to mind in that space for
0: you? Well, I mean, it's happened enough. It's somewhat of a pattern. I can't say if it's a trend. But there's this irony of when organizations are under the most pressure or threat. And I think there's some human nature here, what I've learned about the fight or flight instinct. When people are scared the amygdala or the reptile brain kicks in and our higher order thinking and creativity just flat shuts down. And I think the same thing happens organizationally, where people, leaders feel threatened, it spreads and cascades through the organization. And you've got a culture where everybody's just afraid of something, each other, the boss, the competitor, the government. And when the need for learning and improvement and developing skills is the greatest, that's when people double down on, well, we need to save money. We can't change. We're going to do things the way we've always done it. Instead of engaging people in improvement, we're going to lay them off because that'll save money, we think, or at least it sounds good. There's organizations that have said, like quite literally, I hope it doesn't sound like I was taking this personally, but organizations that had been interested in engaging me to come in as a coach, a facilitator, consultant, whatever you call it. And then they decided, no, we're not going to spend the money. We're not going to move forward on that. We're going to wait until things are less uncertain. There's too much uncertainty right now. And I'm like, the only thing I could probably predict into the future is that things are only going to become more uncertain. So if we're waiting for the uncertainty to go away to start improving, well, then I guess you wouldn't need to improve. It seems like a lot of people, especially in healthcare or i don't know if I'm articulating that clearly, but that's the trap people seem to be in
1: No, I, I can empathize you're not alone, you know I think what I continuously see is that people are waiting for this sort of perfect moment to appear yeah, and when the stock market is going through the roof or they've had the best financial year of their life, where everybody on the team is the happiest they've ever been, and only only then will we start and it's sort of, again, I think this is the sort of trap in some respects. It's really about just starting where you are. There is no perfect time. There is no perfect moment, just the moment that you're in. I think trying to help people exactly recognize that and unlearn these sort of perfect confluence moment and really begin.
0: Yeah. I mean, so one of the things that I think people have to unlearn and I can try to tell people and it doesn't work is, building on what you're saying there, if you're going to wait until you feel perfectly ready to start some new approach, then you're never going to be ready. Right. I mean, like my wife and I don't have any children, but friends and family and people who have kids, you know, this common expression of like, oh, you're never ready to have kids. If you're waiting until you're ready, then, uh, you know, I think maybe the same is true with launching a startup. There's that idea. If you're going to wait until the product's perfect, then that's too late to launch. And maybe the same applies to embracing new approaches to management or continuous improvement. You know, I mean, you want to be ready enough, but it's like the old, I mean, it's a cliche proverb at this point, but the best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago, and the second best time is today.
1: Yeah, it's a good one for a reason, I think, as well. And so these are all great insights, and thank you for sharing them. And um, when you're in these scenarios, is there any techniques or tools that you use with these organizations, again, to try and help them start to identify this sort of need to unlearn rather than to, just debating yeah. ways well, you can make it visible.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things, and I said something similar a minute ago, me telling people something doesn't really affect change. You can only help people discover and explore and learn, and that's something I've had to unlearn. And i found there's a methodology, and here's serendipity. I was at the Lean Startup Conference a couple years ago. Entrepreneur there, her background was in social work, and we were at an event and networking thing, somebody introduced us to each other. And the greatest gift I got from her when we chatted about the work we do a little bit, and she said, I think you'd be really interested in something called motivational interviewing. And it wasn't any sort of hard sell or it was just like, I think you might be interested in learning. And I was fertile soil for that idea. I'm interested in learning. And you yes. know, I read, it's the first and probably only psychology textbook I'll ever read. It's a book called Motivational Interviewing. And in a nutshell, it's these ideas that have their roots in counseling and actually in addiction counseling, where you started seeing parallels to like trying to be a recovering engineer, of the expert. And like the way the therapist who wrote this book framed the old approach to addiction counseling was basically the expert telling people to stop doing something or to do something. And like that doesn't work. Like that expert driven approach of telling somebody to do something only breeds defensiveness. And this seems to be very much human nature. You need to embrace continuous improvement means somebody else's, kind of equal and opposite reaction is going to say, well, what? No, I don't. No, I don't. I can't do that. I don't really need that. And so, you know, motivational interviewing is this approach to counseling. If you have a shared objective of not telling someone what to do, but drawing out through conversation, getting that person to do more to articulate their reasons for change, their commitment to change. And so your role as a counselor is to ask questions and to provide support and it's not manipulative because it's shared objective, but helping someone talk themselves into changing, which I think is just so revolutionary. And there is a book out there. The book I would recommend is called motivational interviewing for leaders, which is written by some counselors about how you would apply this in the workplace. There's a former Toyota person from Kentucky, Ron Oslin, who. uses a phrase that's kind of provocative. He talks about leaders who are addicted to the status quo and telling them to change what's well-intended. It's human nature. There's this phrase they use called the writing reflex, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. It feels good to be the expert. You feel like you're being helpful. You tell someone what to do, and then when they don't do it, you kind of blame them for not following your direction. So whether it's engineers or as consultants or as leaders, telling people what to do is a natural instinct and it feels good. The problem is it's just not really that effective. So I've really tried to change my approach to where, you know, even ironically, I realize like if I get too excited about motivational interviewing and tell people <laughs> that's not helping them. That's only going to breed defensiveness. Uh,
1: that's funny. But I think it's well intended the advice you're giving here. I think as someone who had not heard of that before, you've certainly piqued my curiosity to pick it up and learn more about it. So thank you.
0: <laughs> but I think the realm for me, the more helpful use of time is trying to understand more about psychology and being more understanding of people's reactions. I would cringe now if I had ever described the people back. At General Motors or Honeywell that I thought I was helping, if I labeled them as resistant to change, I'd like to apologize for that, because labeling others as resistant to change might feel good, but I don't know if it really helps.
1: Yeah, and there's, there's just been so many great themes in our conversation today. You know, I think this idea of not trying to push ideas onto people and pulling them from them, I think, really shines through in your stories. And this idea, again, of, keeping going back to what's a shared outcome that we want mm-hmm. to set our expectations. Right back to your Kanban story in the factory, truth of this motivational mm-hmm. interviewing, like mm-hmm. getting people to describe the place they want to get to. And that seems to be what opens up these options are to experiment with new behaviors or new thinking to try and get to this outcome that they're aiming for is different yeah. where they are today. And I think it's lovely to hear those stories and your lessons and sharing them with us from as so many industries and experiences that you've had. So thank you very much for your time and sharing these stories today. And um, mm-hmm. my parting question I always like to ask people then is, you know, you actually do get to give a tiny bit more of advice and really for like, for leaders who you think are struggling with this concept of both learning new things, but unlearning their existing behavior. What could be a parting piece of wisdom that you could share from your own experiences in this space?
0: So one thing I've seen... In different settings is people asking you to help them be more consistent adopting some sort of new practice so they are trying to relearn a new approach i'm thinking in particular is a nurse manager who was kind of told i mean pretty much told you need to go do these daily huddles with your team and she had some level of commitment to it she had some expectation that this would be helpful and she wanted to or she should, but she was having trouble making it a priority. And so I think one of the lessons that I've taken from motivational interviewing is you know, and I was there as an outside coach, but let's say if I was the director, I could have told her, I don't care, you need to do this every day, and we're going to track. And if you don't do it every day, there's going to be consequences. And, you know, sort of that, you need to do it because we say so approach, which then makes me think back to Toyota people who use the expression, you know, lead as if you have no formal authority, right? Because if you play the formal authority card, that nurse manager might go through the motions and then she hates the huddles and she's certainly not going to really put a whole lot of effort or love into it. She's probably not going to get breakthrough (laughs) results. And then at some point she'll prove, see, I told you these huddles don't really help. So trying to help her understand. So I mean, I asked, questions why this seems important to you which is more of an affirmation this seems important to you tell me what are the top three reasons that you should do this so then i was putting her in a position of where she could sort of talk herself into it you know talking about barriers ends up not being really helpful because then you know she would be talking herself out of it so trying to let her talk herself into it which is different than saying, well, I made her feel like she had input. Like, no, she actually had input. She had choice. I'm not making her feel like it was her decision. It was honestly really her decision to go do this. And the final thought, like for any of us who are struggling with change or adopting new habits, and I think she, this nurse manager, was in that category. She was feeling bad about herself. There's this idea that comes from counseling and motivational interviewing of acceptance and patience and to say, it's okay that I'm struggling with this. It doesn't mean I'm a bad manager. It certainly doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It's okay to reach out for help, and I'm going to continue figuring it out instead of having that struggle trigger the feelings of, well, I'm a failure, so I'm going to stop doing this. That's one way to alleviate that tension, but I think just sort of being more accepting of our own struggle through change is one of the keys to being able to continue working at it.
1: Right on. Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, Thanks, Barry. Looking forward to sharing this with all our listeners.
0: I appreciate the questions really prompted a lot of reflection. And in reflection mode, I might not have directly answered some of the questions you asked, but I hope it was interesting or helpful or both. Absolutely, and I'm glad I could provide some help for you too.